Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 257, Of Course the Cavemen Win. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 15 of Angel, A Hole in the World, and the finale of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noro, A Spell to End Magic in England. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. Angel, a hole in the world. Mm. Not a small episode. All, all the way through it. Yeah. Um, a whole, not, it is not. <laughs> a hole straight through this episode um, and straight through the story. And yeah, this was and, this was a heavy and one. And through our hearts. Yeah, there's a Fred-shaped hole in our lives. Um, yeah, I don't think I texted you after I watched this episode, but I definitely like you did that? just had a kind of like whoa reaction. Like sure, just sort of all right. That's going to take some processing. Um, and 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 I I definitely. I think we will have thoughts and opinions and conclusions, but also I'm conscious of the fact that it ends on a really big cliffhanger with the story sort of unfinished. So um, I'm sure. also kind of intrigued to see, like, what does this episode look like in the full context of whatever the story's doing? So I think we'll have ongoing discussions about the effect of the, these choices and these twists and everything. Mm. Um, so let's, I guess let's start with production notes before we get into the, yeah, into the story. Well, right. And so I, I remember last week sort of having an internal debate as to like, whether or not to give you any like tidbits, I guess, before, um, you know, before you watched it. And I decided not to say anything, which I don't like, I don't know if you took that as a sign at all. It seems like you didn't because it seemed like everything was pretty surprising to you um, or at least not spoiled or whatever. Um, and, and you're usually much better at picking out like the opening credits type stuff, but you, um, said you didn't realize that this was written and directed by Joss, which was one of the things I was thinking of mentioning. Mm. But I feel like that could have given away, not necessarily exactly what happened, but like that something was like something dire is ahead. Right. Um, you know, so I'm glad I didn't say that. I'm, I'm kind of glad you didn't notice that. Yeah, um, no, I definitely didn't. And then, um, yeah, just coming off a of smile time too. Like, you wouldn't necessarily, like, not that you're necessarily expecting another, like, happy, kind, not happy, but, like, humorous and, like, fun episode as much as Smile Time was fun and humorous. But, like, I also don't think that coming off that you're necessarily expecting it to be, like, one of the most serious episodes of mm -hmm. the season so far. Like, that's quite a cliff to kind of drop off. It's a, it's a big juxtaposition there. Mm -hmm. Um but the other thing that I was going to mention that I ended up not was that this episode also, like Smile Time, tends to make a lot of top 10 lists, um, which is kind of unique, I think, for back-to-back -back episodes. Mm. Unless maybe they're like, you know, 
specifically two-parters, which these obviously aren't. Right. So um, I think it, it, yeah, it's kind of not usual for that to happen. Um, well, in such contrasting styles, like you said, like right. to have them both be kind of highly ranked, but also kind of representing the, the polar opposites of emotion within the yeah. show, what the story is sort of able to achieve. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, we can talk about maybe some of the implications of some of these decisions that were made for this episode, um, you know, as we go along, but I at least wanted to sort of note those two things as the Joss Whedon episode and that it uh, is definitely considered by a lot of people to be one of the best. And I mean, I, it, I've never put together my own like top 10 list of Angel episodes, but I, it, could very well find its way. I mean, it's certainly a memorable one mm -hmm. if um, not whatever. Um, might be one or two other things I'll mention as we go along, but I think as far as like sort of episode-wide production notes, um, we could um, mention that. Oh, actually, no, one other thing. So <laughs> this is kind of not really about the episode, but about how it affects a later thing. Um, so obviously this is a very heavy episode and so um apparently after filming um fred's final scene which is pretty much the final scene of the episode as well right mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. when she dies and then um illyria appears um uh apparently uh joss whedon amy acker and alexis denisoff um went out for uh drinks and just kind of ended up sitting around quietly, like not talking, like very exhausted. Uh -huh. And so this became the um, inspiration for the after credit scene in Avengers, where they're all just kind of at the table eating shawarma and That's funny. Um, like just kind of like exhausted from like the Right, the turmoil you know, of the day. Yeah, the, the turmoil of the day, so to like speak. Like, that was so. just, like, a really hard day at work. Right, right. So, um, at least that's what... He, he says that that's the case in an interview, and I don't have any reason to yeah. disbelieve him. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, I, I forgot I was going to mention that, too. Uh, but, uh, there again, one or two other things, maybe as we're talking through the episode, specific to character and, and moments in the episode, but... Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of mention those things up front. Mm -hmm. I know we've got a lot to get through, so I'm yeah. trying to like yeah. <laughs> yeah. move along. Well, that's an so. interesting, I'm glad you pointed it out because that definitely makes that scene even funnier um, Sure. than it already was. Um, so let's start with the funny scene, um, <laughs> or at least funny in its first sort of iteration of uh, cavemen versus astronauts. Um just like, you know, a very kind of classic, memorable Spike Angel fight, but but like a really like, other than the times where they physically started like beating each other up, like at least verbally, one of the kind of nastiest knockdown drag outs that they've had, just like screaming in each other's faces. I love that. Um, I love David Boreanaz line reading at the end about it's not about what I want. <laughs> like the way he kind of like, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know, like starts to lose control, like right up in Spike's face. 
um, is pretty funny. And then you find out there, you have some, who, who even brought this up? But somebody kickstarted the question of who would win in a fight, cavemen versus astronauts. Um, and that they've been going at it for like 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You and know. it starts with Spike's like kind of, it, it gets so personal, of course. Like it's it's starting with like, well, this is just like a classic you kind of BS move. Like, of course you would pick this because it makes no sense. And um, just how sort of, nasty and personal it all gets but um of course we picked this for our title and it's worth kind of maybe we'll you know if we want to come back to it we can but i want to at least note the fact that it is recalled by fred later um in a much more serious context um her kind of fatalistic conclusion like when she's pretty close to her death scene that of course the cavemen win and this idea of th with the old ones in this episode in this sort of deeper well and which makes me think of like the deeper magic before the dawn of time and these sort of ancient evil sure. kind of lovecraftian yeah. you know old ones before there was time or space or anything um yeah the kind of horror of the idea that the cavemen always win, that there's something about the kind of, I don't know, most, you know, no matter how technological and advanced and progressive and utopian the astronauts might be, they can't, you know, succumb to, or they can't overpower the, the most fundamental things which in some contexts i think could sound positive you know like hmm. there are ways to frame that debate where it's like yes old things are you know it's about tradition and strength and magic and all these sorts of things but in the way it's framed in this episode that sounds like it it gives me that lovecraftian feeling of you know we're gonna look down into the horrors of the abyss and go insane and nothing we do can ever defeat the kind of basest right. elements <laughs> of the world. It was that Lovecraft meets Nietzsche that you're sort like, of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would that, I mean, and I think that's kind of, that seems to be Lovecraft's deal. Like, I don't know whether he would call himself kind of nihilistic, but it's, it's that idea of like, just being driven insane by our tininess yeah. compared to the ancient, you know, monsters of the world. Um, so, which I think serves well, as a I, really interesting, just to mention the kind of reason it, I suggested it for the title. I think that connects well with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And there's this ancient magic versus you know, modern industry kind of conflict going on. And in both cases across these episodes, ancient magic wins hands down. Like there's no, it just absolutely crushes, you know, the Fred's lab and the research and their ideas, it seems like just don't have, don't stand a chance against this ancient power. So in, in the, in the sure. context of this episode, that's a terrifying idea in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it might be a little more 
hopeful and kind of exciting. But here, this is not a good thing. Yeah. I was, um, like, the more I think about it, the more the Nietzsche reference is apt, though. Because, like, even thinking about, like, Spike, and, and I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all, because, like, Joss Whedon has identified himself as a sort of existentialist. <laughs> so, like, it wouldn't, you know, and I maybe there like we've seen a bit of nihilism in some of his stuff, you know, to a certain extent. Um, Spike referencing like looking down and imagining like someone else looking back, mm-hmm. and it's like there's this idea that okay, like maybe it could be literally another person, but maybe it it is like the abyss looking back at you, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, and and in the context of that quote, Nietzsche's talking about you know, fighting monsters and be being careful lest you also become a monster. Mm-hmm. Like that's the context of the abyss quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um yeah, that I I don't know if that was if you were intending all of that, but the more I think about it, like the more I do think that there is probably something worth uh exploring even more there. Not necessarily at this particular moment, but sure. maybe in a paper or something along the way. Yeah, no, I think um, that's all consistent at least in this episode with what you know yeah Whedon seems to be getting at here the um um, yeah so just one um one other thought for me on cavemen versus astronauts and then I don't know if you have any other um things to say about this before we move on but um it it is uh so I mean tv tropes is like a favorite site of ours to they do a really good job of sort of identifying these common themes and stuff across mm-hmm. multiple media. Um, and cavemen versus astronauts debate is a named trope on the site, uh, specifically because of this episode of Angel. Um, but it, I find it, so they called it, um, well, among other things, they call it uh, when a Seinfeldian conversation becomes serious business. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those things, Seinfeldian conversation and serious business being, other tropes of course right, that are, right, they're right. sort of like a, a melding of these ideas um right it's the combination but, of the two yeah but i think i you know and i think this goes back to why i enjoy some of whedon's work so much more is because i think even like with the serious business it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek in that like it's it's typically seen as like going you know too far like like it's serious business to like the people within the world, but like, you know, to those watching it, it's funny because it's like, obviously this shouldn't be that serious. And I think that's true where we start out, right? Like it's like, like, like Wesley has initially the audience response of like, Oh my gosh, you guys have been arguing for how long about this. Right. And then, but like, and it does, I like how he says it as not even a question, like a realization, like, You've sure. been arguing about this for 40 minutes. Like right. he kind of concludes that that's the case. He doesn't even need to ask. But then after a beat, it's like, okay, but do the astronauts have weapons? Right. Um, so, but like, you know, you know, we can look at that and be funny and be like, okay, yeah, they're we're taking this way too seriously. But like, you know, in the world, it's like, quote unquote, serious business. But then, as you said, like, there is a way to look at it you know later as like okay yeah there's like something deeper and metaphorical going on mm-hmm. here like then just uh you know j- then just your typical like you know would superman or you know the hulk win in a fight or something like that you know like 
which are like the typical, mm-hmm. you know, geek comic book, you know, debates that people have all the time. Or um, actually another another uh, example that they use is actually from Buffy, where the trio are arguing over which um, James Bond actor is the best. Right. So like those types of things where like that like there's no more significance than just they get really upset and serious. And Andrew, like, you know, yells that like Timothy Dalton should beat Sean Connery over a head with an Oscar. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like they obviously take it very seriously, but we can just kind of laugh at the funniness of it. There's nothing kind of beyond that. Um, but I think, yeah, you've, you've shown that like there, there definitely is here. Right. This takes it to even a further level. Like, yeah. Apart from, the seriousness with which Angel and Spike take it as they take every interaction with each other. Um, you know, there's, there is no Seinfeld conversation with them. Really every stupid conversation is serious business. Right. But like, yeah, I think Fred kind of recalling it in the context of what her potential fate is going to be is like, takes it to that next level of creepiness. So, yeah. And the fact that, like, even the fact that it is, like, yes, it ties into these deeper philosophical Nietzschean ideas, but also the fact that even that she's treating a really silly conversation with that weight is kind of creepy in itself. Like, it kind of puts it in the same category as her other, like, ramblings and delusions. Like, Right, like, like being worried about a B- minus or whatever. Right, like, just that she's it's part of her kind of deterioration that she's going to see kind of symbolic significance in whatever sort of pops into her head. Um, So yeah, even the fact that she's still thinking about it and worrying about it is in itself kind of scary. Um, So yeah, I think it, it works in a number of different interesting ways and that's really funny that it's in TV tropes. Um, it's always fun to know the origin of those trope names. Um, sure. So, okay. Why don't we do the Fred kind of initial stuff? So we start out with this little flashback, which is fairly straightforward. I don't think there's too much to dig into. We've got, you know, back to her, back to her Texan roots. Um, her accent is back. Um, and so are yeah. her, um, her, you know, which she's sort of gradually lost over the course of the series. Um, and, you know, her quaint little cute parents and they're kind of worried about the big bad city. And, and she's kind of assuring them this is before she's lost on Pylea. So she has all this brimming with confidence and hopes and dreams and all the things she's going to achieve and you know, everything right. she's going to do. Um, and so there's a few things, you know, one is then the kind of smash cut to her torching a demon. So you kind of get the, it's a satisfying <laughs> juxtaposition of, um, yes, she how, is going to, how far she's come. <laughs> well, and like, she did go on to achieve all these things that she wanted, that she is going to learn every damn thing and, and discover things that people never knew. And, and, you know, but also like, yeah, the contrast between her promise to be dull and boring with 
the way she's actually gone about achieving those great things. Um, but also, like, certainly in in the second watch, I couldn't help but feel silly for not being kind of almost knowing in that first scene that Fred was in trouble. Because, like, I feel like every time we get, like, here's a nice happy prologue of <laughs> one of our beloved characters when everything was nice and rosy and, you know, everything was happy and nothing hurt. Um, sure. And, it, and like, the that's, loving... that's a warning sign. That's like Whedon telling you up front, like, get buckle up. Here we go. Um, yeah, the 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 lovey dovey stuff between right. Wesley and Fred right. should set you right. off the, to something. I right. mean, again, not necessarily right. like maybe that coupled with the prologue would tell you that Fred right. specifically in is in trouble. But yeah. like even yeah, like any time someone is in a happy relationship, mm-hmm. you know it can't last mm-hmm. very long. Yeah, I mean, might not have predicted that it wouldn't outlast this episode, seeing as they only got together one week ago but yes like in terms of the long term you know the honeymoon period can only sort of last so long um yeah so it lasts all of like what five minutes in this episode before (laughs) she contracts a virus so um hey it's it's longer it's longer than when tara came back this is true, although Tara and and uh, Willow had a period of time together as a couple, sure. you know, whereas like, sure. you know, Wesley and Fred are only just sort of arriving there. Um, well, I mean, you can't have it exactly the same way every no, time. No, no, but I, yes, this is, I, this is hey. particularly cruel in like the, the swiftness of, you know. The I consequences mean, and everything. Damn you, Whedon is mm-hmm. a phrase for a reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, and again, obviously why I was glad you didn't know that Whedon, because like all of those things, yeah, like knowing that Whedon had written and directed and like maybe realizing that, you know, Fred's happy prologue, you know, and then like, oh, you know, we're like, it all was signs. Like it was, yeah. I think that just, I mean, goes to show like, again, like there's some good storytelling going on. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, a good story will make you sort of recontextualize as you learn new things yeah. and, yeah. and move along yeah. through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes. Um, so the sarcophagus arrives in the lab, you know, Knox signs for it, which is not a good sign. Um, and they, so, you know, with no speak- kind of idea where it came from or who sent it, that's like always sure. a great, always a great idea. Um, yeah. So since we were pointing out things you missed all along, did you did you pick up on him at all as a? I or or I should say, at what point did you pick up on him as maybe a? I did have nefarious. kind of my eye on him. I didn't necessarily think right in the beginning with the arrival of the sarcophagus. I think, um, I mean, we'll get to his scene with Gunn later. It was more. I mean, I think I kind of started to catch on somewhat a little bit before he kind of gets caught. Um, 
I, when he was kind of saying to, uh, to Fred and I guess he just says it to Fred, right? He doesn't really talk to Wes, but he kind of just says, um, you know, I love working with you and that's plenty for me. It's like, all right. <laughs> but I was thinking more, I didn't necessarily foresee his involvement in the kind of cult of Illyria. I was, sure. I, I think I would have guessed that it was more revenge for his, you know, something was going to, he was going to do something in kind of revenge for having been sort of spurned. Um, so I think that's something we can talk about. Like he says that this isn't a revenge move. He says that he chose Fred because he, she is the chosen vessel because he cares about her and that, you know, and he worships it. Um, yeah. You know, so that's a question. Like, if she had chosen him, would he ultimately still have done this? Or is this, is there a kind of petty revenge aspect of it of, well, I'll show you, now you're going to be, like, you know, the the vessel of this god that I'm raising. Um, right. And I don't, I mean, there's what he says. We don't necessarily have to believe him. Um so that's just a question in yeah. my mind. All right. I was just curious. So I, yeah, I was, I mean, even last week though, like we were kind of talking about having a, an eye on Knox, like, you know, um, he's not going to be, he does work for Wolfram and Hart after all, like surely right. there has to be something a little shady about this guy. So him acting sort of cool with everything wasn't necessarily the most convincing. Um, yeah, so Fred... There's like a moment where she's sort of drawn in by one of the jewels. Mm -hmm. Which again kind of begs the question, like, is that just because she was there? Like... And maybe Knox arranged for her to be there and to see it, but like, would it have sort of tempted anybody in the same way? Or is it calling to her specifically? Is there something that Knox did to kind of make sure that she would be the one or that she would have some sort of connection with it? Um, yeah, and I guess I just kind of took that as, I mean, not necessarily that it, I mean, I, I guess I don't know for sure, but, like, I always kind of took that as, like, because Knox leaves, right? Like, he, like, expressly leaves the room. Yeah, right. So he kind of arranges like, for her to be the one that... To be alone with the right. sarcophagus or right. whatever. But presumably, it seems like, unless we find out differently later, it seems like if somebody else had been in the room, they would have been drawn to it in the same way. So it's not like... Fred doesn't seem to have some inherent connection yeah. to. Well, and so I guess that that's the question, right? Because like Knox was alone with it in the room mm -hmm. before Fred arrives. And I mean, knowing that Knox, you know, knowing what we know about Knox later, like he says that he did scans of it and stuff, but maybe he never did those scans. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, maybe he's just saying that to make Fred more intrigued by it. You're mm -hmm. right. Like, Oh, I scanned it and it didn't read anything. And so 
you know, that just makes it more attractive to her. But, like, is it because he's, like, sort of an acolyte or whatever that he doesn't, maybe he's not affected or maybe it doesn't call to him. Like, maybe there's some kind of, maybe Illyria's will or something has some kind of involvement there that, like, it can reach out or not reach out depending on who's Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I always kind of took it as, cause, and we also don't know, like, like, who are these people who delivered? I mean, Knox says he does, he didn't recognize the delivery guys, but presumably the people delivering it were also acolytes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think they like, it doesn't seem to me like they would hire like UPS to, you know, transport them. It's, yeah. Especially if there's a risk of like someone else potentially being intrigued and yeah. you know yeah if yeah. if like Fred's the chosen whatever vessel or whatever like they wouldn't just want like you know John the truck driver mm-hmm. to be the one to like accidentally trigger it's the, like ah uh, Illyria got stuck in yeah, yeah. um Joe FedEx um, yeah um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, right. so presumably so, I mean, they're Marx like is just a liar, and yeah. Um, and well, so and I'm just thinking about it through it more because, like, later when we get when we get from Drogon, like the thing just disappears right from the deeper well. So, like, where does it disappear to? Like, there's it disappears, like clearly it doesn't just appear in their lab, and then we learn from Knox that it's like stuck in customs and stuff. So I like the more I think about it, like the more it almost seems like there has to be some kind of will at play, mm-hmm. just because of like the steps that it had to take to get there, yeah, and like the number of people it kind of would have had to see, yeah, along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it's been traveling for a while, then it probably predates Fred's, like you know, getting together with Wesley, which maybe does imply that even if she had sort of got closer with Knox, he still would have picked her as the the chosen one for this resurrection, you yeah. know? Well, um, we're told, um, what is it, a, a month ago? Right, yeah. Drogon says it went missing a month ago. There you go. So... Yeah, so we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but, like, I think that is evidence to kind of show that Knox had this plan in motion one way or the other. Like, it kind of doesn't matter what... Like, he's kind of made his decision as to who the... You know. Yeah. So... And even and even kind of at a time when he and Fred, it looked like, could be together. Yeah, yeah. And I think it seems like he would have... This was part of the plan, even if they had you know, become a couple. So, you know, unless we find out otherwise, I think maybe we can take him at his word that he picked her not necessarily out of revenge, but because, you know, he, you know, it's an elevated position in his mind to choose her as the, you know, the host for Illyria. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, she does get drawn to it and sort of reaches out and touches one of the jewels this kind of seal opens she breathes in a mess of stuff which is again always great 
Um, and yeah, and then like you know whatever uh, we don't. I don't quite remember if it's minutes or you know hours or a day later or whatever. Um, yeah, there's that. It's kind not of, clear like how much time passes, is it? Like, yeah, I mean that doesn't really matter, but um, some indeterminate I, amount of time later, she gets I mean, violently I get, ill. I get the sense that it's like the same day. Yeah, like because it's like because like it's like now the um, cavemen versus astronauts is is like filtering around the office, right? But like it's that kind of thing that like yeah, probably is that kind of debate that like everyone hears about like in one day and then it kind of fizzles out right uh-huh. like no one's going to be talking about cavemen versus astronauts tomorrow right right um um yeah sure anyway, right so she's chatting about that to Lauren right and um mm-hmm. and then there's the horrific scene which is like pretty pretty disturbing where you know she sings a line or two, uh, and Lauren turns around like a second before it happens, knowing that what's right, coming. Like he's able to read right, um, like a split second into the future. Right, right, and then yeah, she spits blood all over Wesley's face and collapses on the stairs. And at least Lauren is able to catch her because he has that half second of right, you know, uh, foreknowledge. Um, yeah, and I guess that's the kind of, like, there are plenty of episodes where there's sort of magical illnesses or injuries or whatever. Um, and, like, even just a few episodes ago, we had Angel with the parasite in bed where, like, you yeah. know, like a lot of really potentially dangerous situations. But I feel like this is the scene that kind of lets you know, like, this one is really serious. Like, you know, it's 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 usually more of a gradual like somebody kind of you know, step by step falls ill and you kind of realize it over time or they're in denial or whatever right. here. There's like, you know, no denying up front that something is violently wrong. So yeah, it's a pretty shocking yeah. turn. So, I mean, the other thing that, oh, that always strikes me when I watch this episode um is that they do all of the things that they normally do of mm-hmm. like, we're going to find out what this is. We're going to, you know, figure out a way to fix it and whatever. And I, I don't know. Did, did the, did you have it? I mean, obviously, all right. The way I was going to ask that was like stupid because obviously you're going to have a different way of viewing it the second time than the first time when you know what's happening. But like, the first time you were watching it, did you ever get a sense of like that they would actually save her? Um Yeah. I think so because Because they always do. Because they always do. Right. And like even though I think in retrospect these scenes are very clearly signifying where it's going, you don't I think pick up on that the first time necessarily. Um, at least not, not consciously, maybe on some level you're sort of being prepared for where it's going. Like, um, 
there's an inevitability to it that by the end you kind of realize, well, this was always like, this was what was going to happen. And they really couldn't have done anything to prevent it. But when you're watching the first time, I think you've, this isn't your first assumption that one of the main characters is going to die. You know, that's like such a rare occurrence, even in a Whedon show that, um, Sure. That there's that part of you that, like, I'm not going to assume that this is the result. Um, yeah. and, and I think maybe with Whedon, you're more used to something sudden, like like with Tara, where there's no... Or, or Joyce, yeah. Or Joyce, where, yeah, there's no way to predict it. It's just, a, you know, something that comes out of nowhere at the end of an episode um, with no... Like, what makes it shocking is that there's no... There might be foreshad- like symbolic foreshadowing, but there's like no way to predict that like a bullet's going to come flying through the window or, you know, or her brain is going to aneurysm or something. Um, whereas I think with Fred, with this kind of episode where it's like, all right, we've contracted some sort of magical disease. That is usually results in a cure yeah. by the end of the episode right. or maybe a cliffhanger where and it's, it's a two-parter and we need to wait until next week to find out like sure if she's going to make it and how and everything and maybe there's still a chance and maybe there's know. still a chance yeah we um don't, you know we don't the, even after death often that's not the sh- end of characters sure. you know yeah right but yeah so, like i think my default assumption was even though, like, that scene was very gruesome where she gets sick, like, you are kind of just presuming that they'll fix it. Um, yeah. Right. It's like you get you get the countdown clock in a way, right? Like, maybe not literally, but it's like, right. okay, we've got so many hours before her insides liquefy, you know, mm-hmm. and we can't save her anymore. But, like, yeah, I mean, we've seen that... Whether main characters or not, we've seen it a bunch of times where they beat it and, like, they find the spell or get the antidote or, you know, do the thing (laughs) that's going to, like, save the, you know, the person. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of where I, like, whenever I watch it, I'm always like, it's it's so funny because, like, they don't, they don't do anything out of the norm Mm -hmm. in this episode. The only thing is that it doesn't work this time. Right. Like that's the that's the one thing that that's different. And like on top of that, it's not even that like they do the things. It's like you also get all of the like counter signals from like Knox, like Angel's gonna decide to, you know, let her die and like all this stuff and and it's like, no, Angel will find a way and like he does every other time. Mm-hmm. And this time it's not possible. Well, and there's even some messing around with those expectations and the timelines too, because we get the scene that Knox is saying we will, where Angel's told about like this choice he has to make and and he's and he does his hero like screw the world kind of thing. Like he's gonna right. save Fred. But the thing is, the episode ends before Drogon can come back with the spell. So even if Angel had decided to say, screw the world, we'll figure something else out, we have to save Fred, he's too late. Like, 
if we are to assume that these are happening somewhat, like if the cross cutting means that they're basically concurrent, right. um, then it doesn't even matter if Angel would have made that sacrifice. She dies before he even gets there. So sure. Yeah. Like it's, you know, you're expecting Angel's choice to be the one that matters in the end. And really it's like, the race against the clock and the clock runs out before he even really gets to make the call. So, um, yeah. So, and I guess like in terms of doing what they normally do, again, in terms of the foreshadowing scenes that kind of let you know how this episode is going to end. I think there is a different vibe after we know when they're all sort of gathered around her sick bed and it's very kind of Mm -hmm. making awkward light, jokes and trying to be sort of nice and comforting and everything and then the tone the way they shift when they leave and um and everybody's all business and you can tell like you know the the even with other similar episodes there's a different attitude to this one because they there's something they know how serious it is um sure but also because it's one of them maybe sure right Mm-hmm. Like that, you don't get with, and not even so, and and specifically Fred, because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I, tell me if you think differently, but I I think Fred all along is set up to be, you know, more innocent in a way, and more, uh, I mean, we certainly see like that she's capable, and you know, we've talked about like. And she even brings up here, like, you know, I'm not the damsel. I lived in Pylea where, you know, they were slaughtering my kind, like cattle and, you know, that kind of thing. And so, like, but, you know, she's also the wayfish, you know, like, not as physically strong one. And so I think there's just a tendency to, like, be more protective and be more Mm -hmm. maybe willing to see her in in that sort of light um yeah mm-hmm. i don't anyway just so like even more so than like if or when wesley gets sick or hurt right like mm-hmm. you know it's not when angel visited wesley in the hospital and was like you know i'll kill you <laughs> again if i see you right yeah. like it's a different different feeling altogether <laughs> yeah um so yeah yeah um, all right, I know we've kind of gone all the, around the place. Any sure. any more kind of on Fred's initial like sickness and um um no, kind of I think we can switch over to like the investigations. Um unless there was anything you wanted to bring up that I missed. No, I think we're good. Okay. So they go to, they find Eve's house. So there is a scene earlier where Wesley, when he walks in on the cavemen debate, he's coming to kind of let them know that he's tracked down. Uh, well, gun. Gun, yeah, right. that's right. Yeah. Right, through the, you know, the through the paper trail, has tracked down Lindsay's apartment or house where he was staying. Um, and that's where Eve's, been hiding out ever since Lindsay got sucked into his other dimension. 
Um, so yeah, so the first assumption, fair enough, is that maybe Lindsay and Eve have something to do with this because they've been kind of messing around lately. So uh Right, like maybe it's a a dead man's trap or or what you know, what do you call it? Like a dead man switch or something where like mm. you know, if they get caught then this right. other thing sure. gets triggered. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so it's a good excuse to go find her, which they've been kind of worried about her anyway. So, um, you know, yeah, so Angel and Spike and Lauren go find her at Lindsay's. Um, and she's pretty much just living in hiding, terrified. Um, she's made enemies with both Angel and the senior partners. So she's kind of right. totally on her own with no allies. Um, yeah. Doesn't know what happened to Lindsay, you know, completely cut off um and uh and and very i mean you know because whenever we've seen her before she's always been very put together professional yeah. right like this yeah. is right no, she's, she's very disheveled yeah. and yeah like not um but and and yeah anyway so yeah 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 um interesting to see lauren as the primary like bad cop interrogator here. Um, sure. His, his letting out his inner Pylean. His protective instincts are out in force for Fred. Um, yeah. You know, throughout the in- the the episode, he's kind of, you know, not more concerned than anyone else. Certainly, I mean, in some ways, Angel and Wesley and Gunn all have deeper connections to Fred in terms of their personal relationships but it but it's kind of fun to see that in some ways lauren is the one like most on the warpath like you know i think that's again just his kind of empathetic you know way of being and and he and fred do have like a strong connection so um yeah it's a different different color on him if i can use the expression to have him you know threatening her and you know, if I if I hear one note, one quarter note that tells me you had any involvement, these two won't even have time to kill you. Um, right. And and I like the little anecdote he kind of tells at the beginning again about Winifred Burkle after a sinful amount of Chinese food and in lieu of absolute no- absolutely nothing said that I think a lot of people would choose to be green, your shade if they had the choice. So again, like, what is it that he's worried and, and and valuing it's this connection with fred and he's the one who shows empathy for other people but she showed it for him and you sure. know that kind of like reciprocal compassion for each other is what seems to be very important to him um and if she sings any diane warren he'll kill her um <laughs> <laughs> so no pressure sure. um well, so um, I like I wouldn't have picked up on this either, so I don't necessarily expect you to. Um, but the song that she does sing, that Eve sings, is actually um, way back in season two. I don't know if you remember Lindsay um, did a stint where he played guitar and sang at, I believe, at Caritas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a song written by... Christian Kane and David Greenwald. Um, and so that's the line. She sings two lines from that song, um, which is called LA song. So, okay. Okay. Um, 
which is kind of appropriate, right? Like, I mean, Christian Kane and David Greenwald wrote it, but like maybe you could imagine like it was Lindsay McDonald, right, <laughs> who wrote the song and the thing. So of course she's gonna sing yeah. the song for her lost lover, right? right? right. <laughs> um, as right. the thing. Oh, sentimental Eve. Right. Um, right. Which, yeah, I mean, we don't consider her that, but clearly she is to some degree at mm-hmm. least. Yeah. Now when she's in hiding and. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean. Right. And it suggests that she's, there's a genuine fear for Lindsay too. As, and, and longing for Lindsay, not just her own self-interest. Like. Sure. I was going to say as duplicitous as she was with angel and team like i i think in her interactions with Lindsay, we always got the sense that she at least was on his side i don't i don't know that i would say he was always on her side um sure like he seemed to be using her more than anything but she seemed loyal to him yeah um at least uh somewhat so i mean not like pretty loyal to him like she definitely she seems to be genuinely concerned about him and mm-hmm. his absence um i'm not entirely sure had it gone the other way that Lindsay would right. feel the same way but, right um yeah yeah and eve seems not too long for this world according to lauren either sure yep well yeah and not necessarily you know he says make like Carmen Miranda die. Um, like the, the implying that not long for this world That's, in the sense that is she going to leave it by other means than death? Like maybe death is preferable sure. to whatever is in yeah. store for her. There um, are other worlds than these. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. And well, I mean, as a Wolfram Hart employee, death doesn't necessarily get you out of the contract either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um this is true yeah 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 right so and okay so to kind of finish up with her she tells them about uh the 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 oldest scrolls in the deeper well and and gives them sort of the clues that they need to figure out um what illyria is and where it comes from and you know wesley's able to use that to sort of track them down to where they need to go Mm-hmm. Um, so she gives them some good intel. Um, yeah, and right to her credit, it's accurate. It mm-hmm. seems like I mean, so far, so well, good. or at least to her, no further demerit. <laughs> Maybe credit's not the right word, but yeah, yeah. Um, cool. All right, let's talk about gun. Yeah, gun versus gun. Gun versus gun. So gun and the conduit. Um, oh, so first I want to mention really quickly that scene with Wesley. And it seems after all our speculating that gun does remember that he was in a relationship with Fred, which is the first we've heard about it in like a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite sure what to do with that. Very interesting. Um, yeah, they seem to remember, like, the last year. Yeah. Just not the Connor part. Yeah, but which is strange because just I would have felt like there would have been more t- 
tension with that, with Fred's kind of interest in, you know, Knox and Wes and all this stuff. Like, this is the first hint I'm getting that, like, Gunn was, like, cared. Um, sure. So it's just, okay. Um, I mean, maybe he's just very mature and they just moved on and that's kind of good for them. But um, they didn't really end their relationship on great terms. So it's kind of funny to then find that, oh, they've actually remembered it this whole time. But anyway, um, I don't know that we have enough to really make a firm conclusion about that. So we might as well just sort of leave that yeah. where it is. Um, so, but it kind of what it does do is re at least for this episode reestablishes Gunn as again one of the one of her boys, like one of the people that care really deeply about what happens to her. So it kind of gives him some motivation back to go figure things out. So, um, so he goes up back to the white room. Um, and meets the conduit again, who we find, who's now kind of says the conduit appears as whatever you need it to be. So it's sort of a conduit well, of, or yeah. not need it to be, or whatever you determine. It says it's determined, determined by the viewer. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. I mean, I have to, I haven't really thought through. All right, what does that then imply about the the little girl and the and the panther and all that sort of thing? I'm sure you could kind of do some analysis well, of that. But um and also what is the conduit lying? Like Sure. I mean, I I think with any Wolfram and Hart thing, that's always a question of like is what the conduit's saying actually true right um or is it one of those things or is it more of a fairy type thing of like well yes but mm -hmm. like in what way are you saying they determine it right right so yeah in any case it appears as himself um and and kind of lays out more clearly than it has in the past, sort of, at least, again, taking what it says with a grain of salt, claims... You mean, you mean more clearly than growling? and Yeah, yeah. Or the little girl, or, yeah. Sure. Yeah, more clearly than not saying anything. It, it says, um, it, you know, claims to, again, speak for the senior partners, and they're tired of your insolence. They're not here for your convenience and is sort of berating Gunn for kind of going around acting like he owns the place and and kind of calling on the senior partners in the conduit to do things for him when he wants them to, for upgrading himself when he wants to. Um, he gets beat down for that kind of literally. And 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 then his face is sort of rubbed in the uh what seems to be the fact that he signed Fred's death warrant you know that in his sort of he didn't read the fine print of his contract with the doctor 
And something in there allowed this sarcophagus to get through its holdup in customs. Um, yeah, or, I mean, I don't know that it was even specifically the transaction with the doctor. I mean, I, I know that that's sort of the implication is, is it's Knox, I think, right, who says, um, yeah, that, like, he helped get it through customs for that. But I just, I just took that as, like, and I could be wrong, but I took that as, it like, like, he just does a lot of paperwork, like, for his job. And, like, mm -hmm. that's, you know, he he didn't necessarily pay attention to everything that he signed. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily, I mean, I guess, I guess it, you could take it as like, he did that specifically to get to, or to keep his smarts, but. Or that I, I thought they specifically said like, it's what you did that like allowed this to get through. But like, I didn't even necessarily take it as you agreed to this one thing as like, he agreed to a whole bunch of stuff and most of which he doesn't even understand what it is he was agreeing to. And sure. so it could have been like in amongst all the different orders that he was able to push through um, right. here. This was one of them and there's potentially more, you know, like how many other papers has he signed? Not fully understanding what it is that he's signing. Um, so, yeah, this is the result of his kind of latest deal with the devil. Um, and then he goes on to the scene with Knox, which we kind of talked about. I don't know how much more there is to say from Knox's point of view. I think the kind of big thing at the end is Gunn killing him, it seems, like bashing his head in with... Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what do you think? Do you think, like, I mean, because he, he hits him once and, like, knocks him out. It's like. and But then he goes for it again. Yeah. Is I, that the death blow? I think that unless Knox has some magical insurance and is getting, you know, some Illyria help upgrade himself, that was not looking too good for Knox. Um so if he's like a mortal human still, I, I'd, so be, is, I'd be surprised if his head is still intact by the time Gunn was done. Is Gunn the one who sends him back to Mal and Zoe then? Is that? Sure, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, that extra... Yeah. And it's it's like that over the head like well and I mean there's a very the, cinematic like killing blow aspect to it you know and what it's I mean the, like the hesitation it's the like if he like, just sort of knocked yeah. him out and then that was the end of the scene you would I think think okay if you don't see the body he's he's probably still alive but it's the it's that kind of weighty pause before he knows he's about to do something bad that seems like, yeah, in kind of cinematic language, I think we're being told that he's, you know, that's mm -hmm. it. Now, again, if you don't see it, it didn't, did it really happen? Right. We didn't see the brain splatter. We didn't. But, um, but the implication seemed to be that Gunn has, has already crossed the line and he's crossed another one here. Um, and that he kind of, 
did so knowingly, not just in the moment of rage, but kind of right paused that a, to think about it and made a decision. Yeah, there, I mean, it may not have been long, but there was a bit of premeditation to that. Yeah, I guess, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Like the first one, you could say, "All right, heat of the moment," but the second one, it's like, "Oh, he thought about that." Yeah, for... yeah, yeah, for several seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not looking too good for a gun. Or um, knots. Well, we don't care about knots, but. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing is like, he's got a pretty. I mean, well, one, he's got all his legal knowledge anyway, but like. He's got a pretty good excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, like he like I'm pretty sure if he explained to Angel what Knox did, like Angel's not gonna be too pissed about it. Sure. <laughs> That's um, true. That's true. I I worry more. Um like I think the way the trend with gun is that things are getting grayer sure. and grayer. And you know, um, and he just got beat down himself, yeah, too, yeah. So like, there's, is there a transference sure, going on here? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and like a recklessness of, I've already made the worst mistake. Who cares what I do now? Like, you know, right. the kind of, you know, if he's sort of feeling the guilt of what he's done. Um, a sense of he'll do, you know, the lines he's less worried about, the moral lines he'll cross. Um, because what worse thing can he do than yeah. getting Fred killed? So, um, yeah. Yep. Okay. Meanwhile, Angel and Spike take their first airplane ride <laughs> over to the Cotswolds. Um, yeah, and I like that they're like making plans to go see Les Mis together, like yeah. after or whatever. Like as as one does when in the Greater London area. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're going over to the old country. Might as well take in a few of the sights. Yeah, yeah. Do some West End theater. Um, yeah. And yeah, so they end up in this sort of foggy, you know, kind of field with spooky trees and, um, and, and there's a a hollow, you know, very fairy hollow tree, um, which is the entrance to this deeper well, this little underworld, um, where all these sort of mailed, chain mailed demons pour out with swords so like the the medieval kind of trappings are very distinct um mm-hmm. and uh yeah there's the great moment where angel tells spike to hold his hand <laughs> and then they pull the wire out it's like throwing a bone to the shippers out there right sure um, sure there's that and but also then the idea of this like um well this is another sort of like Whedon meme kind of thing of like reference to some you know former mission or situation right um because that's like throughout the Avengers 2 between 
um, Black Widow and Hawkeye of like, oh, remember like Bulgaria or whatever, right? Like, right. But um, we don't really we're, know the yeah. We don't the know details. the details. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, we see what that is. Like, oh, okay, you're holding the garroting wire, and we're gonna cut their heads off, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, like that callback to like, oh, it's you know, back in in the old days where you know at that time when they were both soulless and you know fighting and now this you know now that table's turned but they can still kind of have their fun you know so to speak um yeah yeah it's a fun fun little scene Mm -hmm. uh to see them fighting all the guys um and then it turns out to be someone angel knows yeah i thought he was drogon at first i had a game of thrones moment but drogon Drogan um, is the yeah. the I mean, the you know, keeper the, of the well. You can yeah, you can say it however you want, I suppose. Um yeah, which I guess cuz yeah. I don't know what book is Drogon is, is it Game of Thrones that he's introduced in or is it the second book? Uh I think it I think it's the first one, right? Like initially I can't remember when Daenerys is actually like sold off. Oh, to... well, that's Drogo. Drogon is her is her oh, dragon. Is the that, dragon that she names yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for Drogo. So that's right. I'm anyway, sorry. I just misheard it. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so that was later. Then anyway, yes, yeah. I was I was just trying to think of the timing if that would be. I don't think there's a connection. Anyway. I doubt it. I doubt it. Other um, than they just have sort of pseudo medieval dragony sounding kind of names sure um you know which sort of works here with the sort of englishness of the setting and everything um yeah yeah and he can't lie and um and yells at spike when spike tries to ask him right (laughs) i love i love how quickly he cuts him off with the first question of who the bloody like he he only has who out of his yeah. mouth before he's being screamed at to shut up and not ask any questions. Right. Like, I'll kill you if you ask me yeah. a single question. Yeah. Um, but then we get, like, Spike asking him a bunch of questions later, and he just ignores just them. Just refuses to answer. So, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, okay, like, you, you cannot lie, but wouldn't be like, I'm going to refuse to answer your question be a not lie? <laughs> like, like, you could truthfully say... I'm simply not going to answer any questions you ask me and then right. don't answer them. Right. Um, Cause it doesn't, he doesn't seem, while he may not be able to lie, he doesn't necessarily seem compelled to answer a question just cause it's asked either. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like his, his uh, anxiety and fury <laughs> like seem maybe a little misplaced. Although we also have to admit that like, He's alone by himself, kind of watching these sarcophagi, you know, as they stretch down into infinity and, or well, not infinity, but through the earth. Yeah. Um, and just lost one. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, he's Got having up. a having a bad month. Got up and walked away. Yeah. On its own. I leave the for five minutes. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. He went to the bathroom and uh, Illyria. Yeah. Escaped. So, yeah. So I mean, he downloads some. 
well, like I was the just kind gonna of say main bits of the exposition and everything. It, it's funny that like we get this character who can't lie because I feel like typically we don't question a lot of like <laughs> that type of information anyway. So like, why specifically? Mm-hmm. I I and I don't know that like I have a good answer for this myself. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Like, no, I was kind of wondering the same thing. Like what? And maybe we'll see him again, but um, what's the narrative sort of purpose of his of him not being able to tell a lie? I mean, other than I guess just the adding, you know, absolute truth to it when he says things like, "If if you draw it out of your friend, then every single person." in the world basically you know right or most of the world will but i feel like this disease instead like even if we weren't told explicitly that he can't lie i feel like we would believe (laughs) that sounds about right um yeah so So, yeah I, i mean i don't it doesn't like hurt the episode in any way i just i i have trouble seeing how like that particular attribute is like necessary, I guess. Well, and it seems a slightly a little bit of a waste of a good idea. Like, you know, if you're going to do the character that cannot lie, like it would be kind of fun if that actually like mattered for the story, but um right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um that is what it is. So yeah, so he kind of gives them the info dump, shows them the the uh, titular hole in the world that goes all the way through the center of the earth and out to the other side, filled, it's sort of this magical prison of these demonic old ones. All of them are sort of yeah. trapped here and, and sleeping and it's his job to guard them. Um, it is funny how how many like demons and bad things are like trapped under some hole in the earth. Mm-hmm. Like, because you've got the Hellmouth with all of its, you know, uber vamps, <laughs> you know, below it. Yeah. Now it's like, now we have this deeper well with all of the old ones, you yeah. know, kind of extending down. Yeah. Yeah. Um,. um. Yeah. I mean, that seems like as good a place as any to bury um, some bad guys. Again, I think it connects to that kind of Cthulhu idea um, sure. of dangerous things down in the depths. Um, we kind of talked about the the whole hole in the world and Spike staring into the abyss. Was there anything else about that? scene that we needed to touch on no i think i mean the stuff with drogan is is really more about the illyria yeah stuff that we learn about her and sort of the hopelessness of trying to put her back like mm-hmm. i think yeah and maybe and maybe if anything like maybe that's where like drogan comes in is that like you start to realize like, oh, there's actually no way to realistically get her out of Fred. Mm -hmm. So does that, is that like where maybe we start 
thinking like, oh, okay, this is, we're playing for keeps. This now. is going to be really bad. Yeah. 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 Right. Because um, if, I mean, I suppose, like, even if he can't lie, like, does not being able to lie mean he's also not ever mistaken? Because, mm. like, there's a difference between lying and just being wrong. Being wrong, yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, I don't, like, maybe that's, if, if there's something there, like, maybe it's like, yeah, we, we, like, just have to believe that, like, Illyria is never gonna... Like, Fred's never going to get better because, mm -hmm. you know, of what Drogon says. But, yeah, um, yeah, even that seems like, I don't know, I think I still would have believed someone, <laughs> like, who said that. Like, I, I still, I don't know that it's necessary to have someone who doesn't lie, per se, mm -hmm. um, say that. But that's fine. Yeah, but maybe it does kind of make the claustrophobia of like the inevitability that much more um you know yeah i think they maybe could have found a better story for that idea but um but for making what happens to fred seem totally inevitable i guess it kind of works towards that yeah um let's finally turn to wesley and fred um so there's the Wesley researching scene, which mainly involves uh, him reading <laughs> books and shooting guys in their kneecaps. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, ruthless Wesley coming out um, and and says to, to, it's not Harmony, but whoever the kind of assistant is, like, send anybody else to me who does not want to work the, the Fred case. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're seeing kind of a more romantic and softer side of Wesley, but there's, is that reminder there of the kind of serious violence that he's capable of when he's pushed yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, yep. and then we get Fred in the lab, uh, determined to cure herself since, uh, you know, since she's the scientist and in some ways the only one really capable of curing herself, like she's kind of not so much yeah. with the trusting the others to figure it out. Like, and as far as she's concerned, this is a disease. We have to approach this scientifically. And that means that she needs to be in the lab with her equipment. And and this goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier about like, yeah, they're doing all the right things, right? Mm -hmm. That like, Wesley's consulting his book like literally just last week we had Wesley consulting his books and Fred in the lab and together they figure it out right what you know what to do to like get Angel turned back from a puppet <laughs> so yeah. like like this is the formula that works and except this time it doesn't right yeah um, and so yeah. do you see when she when she, like, you know, asks, you know, oh, you know, that book can summon anything, right? And and then she says, okay, well, take me home to my own bed. Like, do you see that as her giving up? I 
Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't. Sorry. Well, I kind of want to say yes and no. Like, not giving up in the in the suicidal. She wants it to happen. Sense. Sure. Um. But I do think there's an acknowledgement that what is from her point of view anyway what's going to be is going to be and if she's saved from this it's not going to be anything that she can do yeah so there's a relinquishing of control of the situation i guess um sure so um, right so may maybe she still has hope that Wesley or someone else could find it, but she knows that she's not going to be the one right. to find right. it. And right. so she might as well go right. rest and try to conserve her energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the difference. Like it's not a total defeat. But yeah, it's um, not like pull, pull the plug now or anything. Right. Right. But it is like, yeah, the, the mere fact that she's able to, uh, or persuaded to leave and stay in bed. And that, I, I mean, I think the bigger, um, the bigger thing is that Wesley leaves off his research. You know, that's what feels in a way like the, the bigger kind of, again, I don't know if giving up is too strong a word, but the idea that, um, it's more important for Wesley to be with her than it is for him to be doing research and looking for well, a cure. But he brings it with him. Yes. Yeah, but there's a choice and there's like, you know, when she's sleeping, he's he's reading it, he's looking at it, but she only sleeps for an hour. Um, and... Like, I'm not saying it's the wrong choice or a bad choice, but I think sure, there's, sure. She, he could, like, you know, force her to stay in the infirmary with a doctor and say, I don't care if you don't like it, I'm going to go research until I find a cure. But he doesn't do that. He sort of decides to make that a secondary priority to being with her and staying with her and giving her what she needs in terms of her, like giving her comfort and, um, you know, strength and affection and all those sorts of things. Um, like at the end of the day, I think he true, like he kind of makes the choice that those things are more valuable yeah. than a cure that he probably won't find. Um, which I think, again, is like there's an acknowledgement up there of if there's a way out of this, it's not going to be him. So he has to hope that Angel and Spike are going to come through and kind of says what his job is going to be is being there for Fred. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and and he is. And, he is. Um, and she certainly needs somebody because she's like deteriorating very quickly and um you know and like terrified through the whole process it's not like a kind of easy death in that it's not like she's in a coma or falling asleep or anything like that it's like nope she's pretty much awake and conscious and feeling herself dying the whole time um yeah, like so, with maybe just that one exception of like kind of weird, crazy talk. Mm-hmm. She does seem to be pretty lucid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like she says some nonsensical things every so often and then even that kind of scares her. But pretty much she's she knows that, you know, her end is near and mm-hmm. and is pretty terrified the whole time um you know which those death scenes are always the worst ones when you know it's not a peaceful release from the world but this kind of you know terrified kind of transition into something else um why can't i stay definitely reminds me of I don't want to go. Um, Yeah. Can't help but think of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the kind of like up until the last line, this, I don't know, not denial, but just regret of the way things have to be and the way things have to end. Um, And the fear in that last line. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty pretty intense and upsetting. Um, not a very happy last line for the character or for you know her relationship with Wesley. Um, yeah, and then she she dies, and you know a few seconds later starts convulsing and you know jerks off the bed and and sends wesley flying and then she sort of stands up as this bluish demon yeah who seems pretty happy with the situation this will do this this, well yeah i mean at least not yeah like at least i don't don't know if she's happy somewhat content like this is satisfactory at least um have you seen images of Illyria? I think I have. The kind of blue hair like yeah. I think I have. It would surprise me if you had not. Okay. Um Yeah, no. I, I mean very I iconic I and, and yeah. And obviously such a starkly different look than Fred. For right. sure. So, I mean, um, it's still Amy Acker, but it's, you know, a very different. Yeah. Movie. And I think you just see, like, there's so many episodes that deal with, you know, 
demon possession and, and alternate versions of the characters and stuff that I didn't necessarily um, mean anything to me, but it, it is familiar. The kind of like ice blue eyes and the kind of veininess of her face and everything um, is definitely familiar. Sure. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, yeah. So what do we learn about her? I mean, we've talked a little bit, but like, she's an old one. Um, we get a little bit from Wesley out of books, and we get a little bit from Drogon, and we get a little bit from Knox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, well, Drogon says, Illyria was feared and beloved as few are. Um, so feared and beloved that's interesting not just feared um sure but also you know now beloved could mean beloved by the evil members of its cult so that's not necessarily a good thing but um yeah and and and, and it's a warrior as well right right doesn't somebody say that at some point yep um, um i think wesley a great monarch and warrior of yeah. the demon age. Yeah. Murdered by rivals and left adrift in the deeper well. Right. Um, so the other thing is, so we're talking about the old ones, which, I mean, we've had sort of some of the mythology about the old ones before. I mean, they're, they're demons. They're like pure demon, right? Like they're, mm -hmm. uh, and even Drogon says this, um, you know, the old ones were demons pure they warred as we would breathe endlessly. Um, so yeah, like this is like, so we were going to bring up the idea of whether or not this is another Cordy situation. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, so the higher powers, whatever Jasmine was, like, I kind of get the sense that this is even, like, a step beyond that. Mm. And I don't, I mean, maybe that's just... In terms of age like, or power or... Sure. Yes, all of the above. All of it. Like, although, you know, the higher powers, I think we do get the sense, too, that, like, Jasmine was also, like, from the old... Mm -hmm. you know before the time of man mm -hmm. but like you get the sense that this is like even like a further like like you said before like it's the deeper magic from before the dawn of time right like um because jasmine at least we know had human servants at one point right right before she was a higher power or whatever mm -hmm. um Illyria, it's like Illyria is like solidly in the age of the demons, like before man. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think. Well, I think it's not a, a straight repeat for sure. Like there's enough differences that like they're not purely recycling the Corey sure. storyline. And I think. Well, there's no Connor, so we can at <laughs> least grant that. There's no Connor. Um, and I think the fact that if this is the end of Fred's story, um, she's certainly a big, if. a big if. She's certainly got a more uh, ceremonious 
send off than Cordy did, which, you know, adds a bit of satisfaction to it. Um, you know, that at least there was, you know, an actual, like, potentially an actual death scene that actually centered sort of around Fred and wasn't just, um, sort of booting her off off stage or, you know, possessing her sort of behind our backs without us really knowing. And then, you know, you're never really given the proper goodbye to the character. Um, I, I reserve judgment. I do, I, I do think it's a little tough after the Cordy season, which was kind of a frustrating um, ending to, to take your only other female lead and, you know, kind of in very broad strokes do this whole like demon possession slash death storyline again. Um, but I don't know the end of the story. So is that what they're doing? I don't know. Um, sure. So maybe we have to revisit the question. So I think let's revisit the question when we have more context and have the full answer. Um, yeah, I don't think it's exactly the same, but I think there are some parallels that make you kind of question, like, just the sorts of, tropes that are common with like how we kind of write if this is the end of her story how do we write women out of the show um you know or like why are we writing all the female characters out of the show <laughs> like you know like you got what one two three four five other lead actors um you know, it's it's a question to be like, why is it always the women that are being written out? But again, I don't know that that's what's happening. So, um, so I think let's come back to that question. Okay. All right. Well, any other just thoughts on the episode then before we move on? I don't think so. No, I mean it was definitely a disturbing and memorable episode. So yeah, and I'm looking forward to kind of seeing more about Illyria, but I guess more so like how, what's the impact on Fred's storyline? Like, is this really the end of it? Or is there some way of kind of interweaving, like including Fred in this story, even though she's sort of died at this point um mm. or bringing her back at some point i don't know i'm curious to see uh, well until then let's talk about Tom king strange and mr morrow yeah the uh final episode mm -hmm. as it is um yeah and so i was struggling a little bit with how to talk through this episode because Kind of a lot happens. There's a lot of jumping around. Yeah. So we might have to kind of go back and forth a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Um, I did want to start, though, right at the beginning of the episode with um, Walter Pohl. And just, I mean, I don't 
not a spend a ton of time on him, but just sort of like he's sort of like setting the stage for like where we are right in England of like, okay, here's the situation, right? All the mirrors are broken. Every mirror in England's broken. Uh, we now border upon lands, which no one knows anything about. Uh, Mr. Strange has opened the doors between England and the other realms. And in doing so, he brought magic flooding back. And so now we're flooded with magic. Uh, as if the broken mirrors and, you know, new borders weren't bad enough. Um, and on top of this, we don't know why he's doing any of it. So some say that he went mad, which he did. He went to Venice to try to become mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah. Purposely so. so. Uh, and, and, and then like Walter Pohl, um, unlike any politician today, <laughs> says, I regret my part in all of this. And now I resign. I suppose not like unlike any. We have had some politicians resign, but sure. it takes a lot. Like, like this is. I would say this is a, a show of integrity on Walter Pohl's part more than most of politicians of today. Um, it, it is a show of integrity, but it also smacks of that thing of like, sort of like with Brexit at times, like, well, you got us into this mess and now you're going to resign. Like, you know, that thing of like, it, uh, is, is he, it, I think he's doing it as an act of integrity, but it, to me, it's also very politician to kind of say, I, you know, I regret my part here. You, you, I now hand this situation over to you, you know, I guess. And leave it in other that, people's like, hands. Except that in those situations, that's what's called for, is the politician's resignation. Well, like, sure, everyone sure, sure. everyone wants them to resign. So right. I feel like, right. like he, I don't think he's, like, doing this, like, I don't think people are like, no, stick around and clean up your own mess. Like, I think sure, that's true. there's a lot of cheering when he's, or angry shouting, anyway, when he resigns. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. I think, in favor of his resignation, yeah. not... Yeah. What you left us with this, you know, whatever. Um, right, right. But yeah. yeah, I mean, there and and I think there is an integrity aspect, but I do think there's a self-interested aspect because the very first thing he does then is to tell Stephen to prepare his carriage so he can go see his wife. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's wholly for the benefit of England mm-hmm. <laughs> per se that he resigns. I think he gets some benefit out of that too. Yeah. Um, well, so, and, and maybe it's more like just betrays the lack of forethought in dabbling in this kind of thing to begin with. Like, like he, why does he regret his part and, and end up taking responsibilities because he was the one who sort of kickstarted the whole thing and, and made connections with Norrell and invited them into, you know, kind of made alliances with the government and everything and sort of if you're gonna do that then think ahead to how you're gonna like I I don't think he ever thought about what that could mean in terms of his career you know I mean he he did in that he wanted to make sure it was respectable but like he certainly he certainly had has no now that magic is out of control he, as a politician, has absolutely no ability to rein it back in. 
Um, which yes, but you also might have thought about from the beginning. Yes, right. But also, he he wasn't the one doing the magic. Like, like I get what you're saying. That like, yes, he kind of made the associations and stuff. But there's also an aspect here of Norrell went and did some very unrespectable magic. Sure. And never told anyone. So, like, I get what you're saying as far as like, oh, you know, Cole like helped to open the door and you know bring in Norrell and Strange into you know, sort of government service and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can blame him for the types of magic that they do. And especially when they're not telling him what's been done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I like maybe I agree with like 75% of like mm-hmm. what you said. <laughs> uh, but I do think there's some, there's some aspect there of like, like he, he, I don't think it was predictable on his part. Some of some of what happened, um, in part because he was lied to, uh, at least lied by omission to, mm-hmm. you know, with from Norrell. Um and certainly like and and like repeatedly, as far as, so because I want to come back to Paul later and some of the accusations that the gentleman sort of levies against him too, because I feel like there's a parallel with some of the stuff he says and and also even some of the stuff that Lady Paul that Emma says to him. Mm-hmm. I, I try not to use Lady Pole because I don't think she likes being Lady Pole too yeah. much. So I'll try to refer to her as Emma as much as I can. But I feel like Walter Pole gets the shaft a little bit on some of these accusations. I don't I don't think he can or should be held as accountable as maybe some people are holding him, including himself. Like I think he holds himself maybe even more accountable than mm-hmm then maybe is actually realistic mm-hmm. um, or as realistic as one can get in a fantasy story. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, all that to say that like, yes, he resigns sort of gives the overview, like here, here's the, you know, state of yeah. the United Kingdom and, you know, okay, I'm yep. leaving. Yep. Um, the other sort of little vignette that we get in the opening is between Lascelles and Drawlight, which, um, you know, if you've been paying attention to the Lascelles and Drawlight relationship, you could have seen coming a mile away. Like, mm-hmm. it is not at all surprising yeah. that Lascelles kills Drawlight. Yeah. Um, yeah, he told us he would do that, you know, a few episodes ago. Um, and and we believed him. And, and we believed him. We and and Drawlight is not necessarily the best or capable of pulling, extracting himself from that situation. Like he's both completely indebted to LaSalle so that he has to do what he's told. And also like, you know, not able to, I don't know, for as weaselly as Drawlight can be, he's not capable of weaseling, weaseling his way out of LaSalle's control. Sure. Um, yeah yeah um right and so the messages that draw light was meant to bring end up in lascelles hands Mm -hmm. literally and uh he only delivers one of them intentionally (laughs) the -hmm. others end up getting delivered Mm -hmm. uh against his will 
um, so to yeah. speak. But uh, yeah, and again, like I think when we saw the nastiness of of Lascelles come out when he was sort of threatening Jarlet before, um, the brutality of even the killing, you know, the the for all this talk of like gentlemen's in this series, you know, and the kind of nobility of even of like dueling. Like even if if you have a quarrel, there's a gentlemanly way to shoot each other. Um right. and uh so to have kind of again further kind of showing Lascelles as like easily I think like the worst character in the story, you sure. know, will shoot someone in the leg and then in the face, you know, like complete, you know, lack of moral of any kind. Sure. Well, and, and then you get, um, so then he goes to Noro, right. And not only like lies to Noro about, I mean, he tells Noro that strange is coming, which is true, but then like embellishes on like the reasons why strange is coming you know it's to to duel with you to fight with you and you should just kill him like there's what he's like there must be a dozen ways you mm -hmm. know spells that you could look up and you know just make up some magic on your own and um you know clearly has no like not only has no uh idea of what respectable magic is but has like literally no respect for magic whatsoever yeah um and, you know, just, like, you have to contrast that with, you know, the earlier statements of, you know, could you kill a man with magic? Well, you know, a magician, you know, maybe a magician could, but a gentleman never could or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, whatever, what I got that line wrong, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, you know, comparing that mm -hmm. with Lascelles and sort of how he's egging Noral on and, yeah. and um as he has done over and over again throughout the series mm -hmm. um and then the confrontation with Childeras too because you know Lascelles is always so quick to sort of talk about his gentlemanliness and Childeras points out like well would a gentleman steal <laughs> you know from me um which is that same kind of thing like you know a, a Yes, maybe you could steal things by magic, but a gentleman would never steal. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, going back to the, you know, can we can we have a conversation without the servants in the room, you know, and all of that kind of like BS that he sort of pulls rank on or tries to pull rank on with children mass. Um, yeah, they're kind of, as you know, LaSalle's, considers himself Norrell's equal and children master sort of below them. But what it really comes down to is like Norrell's two servants in a way, like, and like there's the kind of faithful and faithless one, you know, it kind of comes down to this confrontation and who are you going to pick and who are you going to believe? And Norrell, you made the wrong choice again. Um, yeah, you know, that's a great like, really? children you're gonna, moment. You're gonna go like... for this guy. <laughs> um, and I well, and I that, love like... that he just like like Noro like refuses to let him have you know to take the finger 
to Lady Pole, right? And mm-hmm. Childerass just like completely ignores him. Yeah. He just like yeah. walks out of the room with the box in his hand. Like. Right. Like he his asking for permission is for Norrell's sake, not for his own. I said, oh, I yeah. don't I don't need your permission. What I'm doing is giving you a chance to make the right choice. To redeem and, yourself. And right. uh you screwed it up again. And um yeah, and I and I like too that like I mean, Childermass isn't a thief in that he's stealing back something that's rightfully his, but I like that, like, he allows LaSalle's to kind of attack him and provoke him so that he can kind of pick his pocket, too. Like, you know, a gentleman doesn't steal. Well, like, Childermass isn't a gentleman. Like, he was a pickpocket. Like, he's, like... Right. (laughs) He never claims to be... As LaSalle's constantly reminds him. Yeah, right. He never claimed to be above that sort of thing. So he lets LaSalle's, like, you know, push him and cut his face and everything just so he can get close enough to slip his hand in the pocket. Um, yeah. Um, and, like, LaSalle's, you know, trying to insult him, calls him, you know, traitor and Johannite. And, uh, you know, children asks, you know, Gentlemen or not, he's like, if I were you, I would speak more guardedly. Mm. You're in the North now, right? Um, our laws were made by the Raven King. Our towns and abbeys were founded by him. Mr. Norrell's house was built by him. He's in our minds and hearts and speech, and he's coming back. Um, and Children Mass is one of the few who sees him actually come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just that that idea of like, like up here we don't take to the whole gentleman thing if like especially if if you're a gentleman and you're acting like a you know thug like Mm -hmm. you're gonna get what a thug gets not what a gentleman you're gonna get what's coming to you um so yeah uh all right so i don't have anything else around children mass and lascelles but yeah he so Childermass sort of like takes off with the finger. Um, and like, I guess just sticking with Norrell in the library there for a bit. Um, he tries to like beef up his security, right? <laughs> like may, if I just make the labyrinth a lot, you know, more mm-hmm. labyrinthy, mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, we'll be, we'll be good. Right. <laughs> and, right. Like, and then he and LaSalle's get like, lost in the labyrinth which is hilarious sure (laughs) they do that and then like strange just bypasses it all together it seems because like he when he gets back in there norrell finds you know strange just kind of like mumbling hovered over one of his books or whatever um yeah which is kind of funny and then he's like well how'd you how'd you break it and and strange goes you know, I just did what I always do, which is I copied you and added a little more, you know, to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. That's, he, that's he great. Embellishes on Norrell's firm foundation. Um, yeah. I took your theory and then made it work. Yeah. Basically is what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there. Um, yeah. I don't. So there's a lot that they like talk about and whatever. I mean, I think. I think it's there's a few interesting moments we can talk through, but I don't know that we need to go like step by step through their entire conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, Norrell 
for whatever reason, continues to like listen to LaSalle's and uh, completely believes that Nor- that Strange is there to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, but once he sort of finds out he's not, like to Noro's credit, he he does come kind of come around quickly ish. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, and I think like for all of Noro's many faults and selfishness decisions and everything like when ultimately when strange kind of says like i'm here to ask for the thing i the only thing i ever wanted was your help i think that's what Noral has wanted to hear like this yeah. is you know there's is the Noral that um you know cried when they had their falling out and and says sure. he couldn't destroy his book and you know, offered to kind of be equal partners rather than, you know, mentor and protege and all these things. Like, I think Norrell is very disinterested and he can be very kind of devious and cowardly, but I think he genuinely does value this sort of professional relationship. And like, I think he comes around quickly realizing, like, well, this is all he's ever wanted, too. Is this kind of somebody to banter ideas with and and do magic work with and work to solve a problem? Um, he may not have realized that he wanted it in this sort of wild fairy context. but But, like, I think it is, like, a stimulating kind of problem. Like oh, we get to read books together and, and devise spells and debate what's the best approach to these ideas. Like, I think he's kind of into that. Sure. Um, so it's like, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that he, once he realizes he's not in danger, it's not like he's really reluctant to help Jonathan. Right. Um, I do find it funny that, like, in the midst of, what could have been a magician's duel. Like, all he's able to do is to, like, summon up a sort of, like, trickling rainfall. <laughs> yeah, especially his, like, screwed up kind of... <laughs> yeah. He's, like, trying kind of so face. hard yeah. to... Yeah. So, and, and of course, contrasted with what we saw Strange doing at Waterloo, which was running around and, like, you know, shooting geysers of water out of the well and, Mm -hmm. you know, tangling vines on the walls, you know, around the, you know, people climbing up the walls and, um, and the whole mud hand thing. Um, right. There there (laughs) doesn't seem to be any of the power to (laughs) Norrell's. Well, and it's cause it's all theory, right? Like, like he has no actual, like, yeah. Practically, because the other thing is that, I mean, we also saw Strange early on when he couldn't do all of that stuff. I mean, now, I think Strange has always had, we've talked about, I think, Strange always having sort of a more instinctual approach to magic, right? It's like, oh, it's called horse sand? Okay, I'll make horses out of sand. Like, Like, it's not, like, he doesn't spend too much time, like, thinking about it when he actually does it. It's just, okay, I'm going to do the thing that, like, comes to mind. And and even Noral later, when, when they actually reach Fairy, you know, kind of says that, right? That it's 
you know, it's the, I forget the exact words you use. I don't know if I wrote it down, but the, the sort of extemporaneous nature, right. Of the instinctual magic that like mm. fairy has. And I think that's the thing that strange is though. Like strange, not that he, you know, doesn't have some book learning, but he sort of had to make do with what he was given with what Norrell would let him have. And so yeah. a lot of his magic is based on that more instinctual level. Whereas Norrell, it is like, yeah, maybe he can compose like certain things if he has like time to sort of arrange everything right and do this and that. But he's not like, he's certainly not battle magic already, mm-hmm. you know, um, in any sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we get a few moments like that throughout, like um, there's like a bit later or, or no, the, well, there's another bit at the, towards the end when he kind of makes his rain door and it's just that little flourish with his hand. Like, you know, it's so different from the way Jonathan does things, but I'm also thinking of when he put the magical protections around the library. And like, again, like with Jonathan, like you said, there would be some tangible show of what he's done. Like you'd get like, I don't know some visible sign of protection. Whereas like, again, Norrell just kind of waves his hand, mutters something under his breath and does his, it is done thing. And it's like, right. you're just supposed to know that he did it. Um, and you just have his word for it. So yeah, they're, they're, their styles are so completely different, but they compensate for each other, you know, mm-hmm. because even though it, by all appearances, Jonathan, is the more impressive magician. Like he says, all I do is take your ideas and refine them and embellish on them. And yeah. there's an there's this kind of idea that they each of them is not going to go as far on their own as they are together. Um, yeah. So yeah, you get the kind of alliance in the end um, and coming together as they try to devise various plans to uh, summon the Raven King. And, right. And right. So first it's like, we're going to summon the Raven King and then he immediately leaves. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, wait, no, we go? want you to yeah. do something for us. Yeah. Um, and he just takes off. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, they, so they're try they try to summon him again with like I guess the intent of trying to keep him around a little longer. Mm-hmm. Like it's not real clear like why it'll work the second time mm-hmm. when it didn't work the first time, but um they seem convinced that if they like offer all of Norrell's books to the Raven King yeah. that he'll yeah. be happy with that. Yeah. Uh and oh, stick oh. around. only half. Um Right. Yeah. I-, I love that bit when he's like I uh um Oh shoot! Where's the line with um, you know, I'm going to offer you all of English magic apart from I am sorry, Gilbert Norrell's books. Um, just the idea that he's going to offer him the entire country, except that, those shelves. Except yeah. those shelves. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, two thirds. No. Um, <laughs> And he's sort of clinging to them. Yeah. Uh, I get it. I get it, Norrell. 
I feel you. Yeah, I'm not saying I, I would do any better. I could probably find a couple maybe I would be willing to do any better. Not yeah, all. that would be tough. So, yeah, and then I like the kind of gradual reveal of where it's going. Because you don't quite catch on in the beginning when they're arguing about the imprecise nature of naming things. Like, okay, we have to, like, call it John Usglass. And, well, but he wasn't, he's known by that name, but he wasn't ever christened. So how do we really know that was his name? And, you know, right. I, if, if we get this wrong, this could be very disastrous and all this stuff. So then they do it, and it's successful. Like, John Usglass seems to work as a title but then well, like as you say he disappears well but so. but there was like a bunch of other stuff there it's like oh well the the you know peach tree or not peach what, what's right, the tree right. that's like you right know, the, pear, the pear, pear tree, tree and Thank the stones you. and the river yeah it's like yeah. well well if we just call him the king right that's they only know the raven king like that's right. that's their only king so right they'll know who we're talking about. Right, right. <laughs> it's like like contextual magic, yes. I guess. Like Right. But then when he leaves, you know, yeah. Jonathan is more desperate and it gets a little sloppier and it's like, you know, the black king, the king in the north, the name of the slave. Like and it's that kind of moment right. when you go, okay, like I see where this is going. Um yeah. as Norrell says, that is extremely imprecise. Um yeah, right. <laughs> and and so, of course, they summon Stephen. Yeah. Um, just before he's about to, you know, kill some people. Um, thankfully, he doesn't. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, yeah. They so they summon Stephen instead. You know, the the Black King, the name of Slate, like all the names fit him, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and you, but you do have to wonder, like, how many other people that would fit? Sure. Right in England at that time, like, I, I can't say that it wouldn't fit any others, like, there's probably at least a few, mm -hmm. but even, you know, even that idea of, like, at that point, like, how many other servants in England were, like, born on a slave ship to a mother who died immediately before she could name him, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, like, yeah. it's probably not a huge number, yeah, um, even at that, um, yeah, and then frickin' LaSalle comes in <laughs> and uh, shoots him. Ruins everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, which doesn't make anyone happy. No. Like even least, LaSalle. <laughs> no, and, um, and least of all the gentlemen. Sure. You know, I love that. Right what have you done? Like, it, that kind of terrible yeah. moment of, oh, no. And um, there's that second, too, where, like, Strange sees the gentleman behind the cells and, like, is starting to, like, try to warn him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I mean, it's obviously way too late because he's already shot, you know, Stephen. But, um, yeah, kind of creepy, the, the ceramic yeah. thing with the eye there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, which is a, I think a pretty significant change from the book. He sort of ends up lost in fairy, sort of wandering oh, the okay. king's roads, and um, 
yeah, this is probably a more fitting end for like such a nasty character. Um, sure. You know, like if he's going to go around shooting people, then, um, you know, that's like the one thing the gentleman does that's a little bit satisfying. Um, <laughs> right. And, but it is pretty creepy. The like, I don't know, like if there's anything more well, meaningful I guess just... behind the kind of ceramic glass, like shattering of LaSalle's like, other than just, it looks cool and creepy. Yeah, I mean, just the idea that he's still kind of alive mm. in and amongst the shards. Because you, you see, like, the eye, like, moving around. Yeah, right. So it's like, he's ceramic and broken, but, like, presumably still has some kind of existence in that form. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of creepy. Anyway, um... Yeah, so the gentleman's angry. Um and, and like that like deliberate stepping on like the large mm-hmm. piece to like break it even further. Yeah. Uh but yeah, the gentleman kind of goes and gets Steven and takes him back to Lost Hope. Yeah. Um I don't do you want to I guess we can just talk about all that Lost Hope stuff now and kind of finish that out before we go I don't know. See, this is where I kind of get stuck because, like, we've already kind of passed, like, some of the other things we were going to talk about. Um, well, maybe we can backtrack a little bit. Do you want to do the Segundus and Honeyfoot stuff at their house? Yeah. Um, so, so we get Walter Pohl, like, you know, going, you know, Stephen drives him up to there to see Emma, who is now just, like, apparently always asleep. Like, they can't wake her up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... Which is an interesting thing, because that seems to be an act of her will. Right? Yeah. Not not yeah. of the gentleman's will. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, that being, you know, that... You know, she's supposed to help Arabella get out of Lost Hope. Uh, if and when Strange is able to show up and, and mm-hmm. kind of help him. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So she's deliberately making herself stay there. Um, right. So that she can be available. And like, yeah, and even. I, like, I really, you know, we can talk about Arabella's kind of final um, uh, ending and the scene with Jonathan and everything. Um, I don't know if you agree. I feel like Arabella starts out a really interesting character and 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 is a little bit disturbed in the last few like just I mean and I, like I get the like reasons. in the episode named for her like where she starting barely around shows up. the time that yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not like I even object to the storyline. It's just kind of a shame because yeah. Um she had a role to play earlier on and then she gets sort of sidelined um whereas i think what's cool about emma is that she even though she kind of is stolen away to fairy like literally right at the beginning of the story she keeps her 
involvement throughout and even becomes more active as it goes on. Like, you know, like I think by the end, she's as much in control as anybody and, and making decisions and, um, sure. And have, you know, and, and is you staying in her place of kind of torment by choice to help her friend. Right. Even has motivations and makes choices and is frustrated when they pull her out of it. Right. So even before her disenchantment, like she's, she seems to actively have some kind of power, at at least within, you know, her capabilities of where she is. I mean, the gentleman obviously is very powerful. So Mm -hmm. you can only expect so much from someone who's, not magical, you know, to resist that. And mm-hmm. she does about as good as anyone could be expected to do. Um, and also that, like, she's there to help her friend, right? Like, it's not just, she's not just sort of rebelling for rebellion's yeah. sake or, you mm-hmm. know, even merely to free herself. It's because it's she has a friend there and it's trying to help her. Yeah. And specifically a friend who came and visited her and tried to help her out right so i do think that there's like a sort of parallel there um with arabella's visits to emma earlier on mm-hmm. yeah um you know and now you know now it's almost like returning the favor kind of thing yeah yeah no that's a really good point that there's like a kind of seesaw effect you know where you know as one of them is more you know starts out more kind of subjugated by the fairy and the other one is sort of trying to figure out what's going on and help her friend there's like a inversion of um their roles in like the second half Mm -hmm. so which is cool for Emma, less cool for Arabella because sure. It's always nice if if the arc goes kind of in the upward direction, but um yeah. But like yeah, I don't it, it's not I I I'm happy enough with the storyline. It's just a little It's just a little sad that we don't get more of Arabella in the last few episodes. Yeah. Um yeah, so um, Children Mass arrives with Lady Pole's finger, and yeah. after some, you know, sort of like debate about which spell to use, um, Segundus remembers that he got this spell mm-hmm. way back at the beginning of the series from Vinculus. And, uh, you know, it's just what a spell to, you know, put together two things that mm-hmm. were meant to be or whatever. Um, so he uses that to. Uh, you know, uh, reattach the finger. Uh, yeah, a- adorable little Segundus successfully completes his first spell. Um, right. It's a proud except, day. <laughs> except that, like, he shouldn't have. Yeah, right. <laughs> At the exact uh, wrong moment. Yeah. 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 Uh, but good for him. He, he's he's yeah, a real I mean, magician after all happy for him that he was able to complete that but yeah it's uh very frustrating for emma who comes back and kind of yells at them for bringing her back too soon yeah um 
Stephen also, so he, you know, obviously is uh, drove Mr. Or, uh, Sir Pole up there. Uh, he, but yeah, Walter kind of gets angry with him when he starts reading Strange's letters. Or no, is it, um, yeah, is it Strange's message? Yeah, because, out right, Strange says, like, that Stephen's involved somehow. Right. Um, um, yeah, and that's, so, such a, that's such a kind of painful moment when, like, he can't explain what's going on, you know? And, yeah. and that's, like, the first time when he really even tries. And he I, gets the same sort of, if they're, you know, speaking in fairy tales, there was once a whatever named whoever, you know, kind of moment. Yeah, it's, right, same as Emma. And, and so what's frustrating is you see the look between Segundus and Honeyfoot. And Segundus has seen the rose at his mouth, right? Mm. He's mentioned several times. So, like, what's frustrating to me is why they don't explain to Sir Pole yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's just, like, one of those, like, when dealing with a gentleman, you need to, you know, be careful about how you intervene right. with his disciplining of his own servant sure. kind of thing. Um but other than that, like, it is kind of frustrating that they don't even, I mean, they could do it very nicely and, you know, uh, maybe even, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, but, you know, just in a way that isn't going to, like, make him angry at them, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. They just kind of let him throw Stephen into this, you know, lockable room um, and kind of leave him there. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Children Mass. Uh, learns from Stephen about Vinculus and and specifically his death, and goes off to try to find him. Um. But w- I guess we can talk about them a little bit later because there's some other stuff there. Uh. Long story short, the you know. Disenchantment of Lady Pole uh, really pisses off the gentleman mm-hmm. uh, who comes. And uh, <laughs> I think the best part about that whole scene or series of scenes is Honeyfoot finally getting to shoot his <laughs> walnuts. Why are you firing walnuts at me? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I, mean, I, I love that line. I also love... Um, the gentleman's concern for Stephen is also, while creepy and touching in a way, also very funny to me. Um, sure. Like, even his line about, what Stephen, are you doing? why are you in that little what room? What are you doing in that tiny room? Like, just how offensive he finds this whole business um, right. is just so funny. Um, well, and also, like, that Stephen could get out of it. Yeah, right. Like, like, right. what do you, why are you, why do you choose to be there? Why do you allow them to treat you this way? How, like, have you no yeah. sense of your superiority and dignity? Um, yeah, his just complete lack of contextual awareness of how humans interact with each other and what English society means and how race operates and that whole thing. Um, sure. It's just really, really amusing. Um, um, 
so yeah so he he's completely uh you know offended and angered by being thwarted and having his you know his lady taken away and now they're locking up his beloved steven and so he's here to just get his fire revenge. And walnuts at him. fire and walnuts at him. It was like <laughs> taking it from like every angle yeah. so he's yeah he's gonna go to town um, um and there's the kind of you know see no evil hear no evil speak no evil sure. punishments for um all the men in the room yeah for sleeping in the tiny foot in yeah yeah um, um yeah and then we kind of talked about his revenge against lascelles um yeah right so that's where so I mean, well, you get the repeat of him giving Stephen a sword and sort yeah, of forcing right. him to kill someone or almost kill someone. And and yet again, Strange intervenes, uh, this time by taking Stephen away rather than the subject of the attack, um, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, because what, what is it the gentleman says about Strange? Like, why does he, like, persist or something? Like, <laughs> Why doesn't he just know? die as he's meant yeah, to like, or something? Yeah. But, like, there's that idea of, like, like everything he does is to foil me. Like, right. You know. Um, yeah, so uh, they end up in Lost Hope um, after Steven gets shot. Um, with Norrell and Strange following close behind. Uh and in Lost Hope, I mean, presumably it's Stephen's own magic that prevents him, either revives him or prevents him from dying altogether. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not 100% clear which. Right. Is this a resurrection or just a near call? Um, because you get that, you know, comment from Norrell of like, well, if we can just get there and whisper to him, like, instructions, then he'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But like, Steven's up and about kind of before they even have a chance to say anything. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, Norrell sort of eventually like yells at him like, oh, it's English magic and Mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. Um, but there's no, um. I don't know what the word is. You know, there's completely just lost my train of thought there. There, Like the Stevens sort of revival isn't brought about by Norrell and Strange really at all. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of on his own. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean, there's chaos. You have, you know, Norrell kind of running around. And then you've got Strange who, you know, goes to his wife and kisses her and sort of breaks the, her enchantment and then sends her through the mirrors, like the one mirror he saved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to to go to Venice uh, where his friends there are waiting. Uh, what, what is it again? The gray? Gray steels. Gray steels. Not the Greyjoys. I keep wanting to say Greyjoys, and I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't think of what it was. Um, the Grey Steels, and 
uh, yeah, but then you have Steven who is like reminding the gentleman of his own sort of prophecies, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. And stuff. I think that's so great because in his own arrogance, like you almost get the sense that the gentleman fooled himself, mm-hmm. right? Like all of the, all of the sort of caveats and, and, you know, using the, the sort of loose language that fairies are well known for to, you know, bring into, um, you know, to sort of trick other people, uh, you find out that he's kind of used it on himself, right? Like, oh, the name of slave shall become king. Well, that means that he's got to kill this king. Right, right. (laughs) Right, and And uh, as the gentleman is repeatedly said, like, you must kill the king in order to become him. Now he meant, like, you know, the king of England. But yeah, like, he's been urging Stephen to kill the king the whole time. Right, Um, And, and like... Like his step, he's like, no, no, no. I meant like I'll still be king here, and you'll be king <laughs> Let's in all England. Be kings together, as and, as King and, George said. Right, and and Stephen's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> like that's not how I'm going to do this. Um, which yeah, so like he puts him in a tree, mm-hmm. like it's just like young old man Willow kind of thing. <laughs> um, I don't. I mean, I guess I guess we're meant to think that he actually does kill him because that's what he says he's doing, right? Yes, like, although this I agree that it's ambiguous. Yeah, like, like, or could he just be trapped and like, like for as long as Stephen is alive, maybe like he's he'll stay. You know, the gentleman will stay trapped, but there's not necessarily a. Mm-hmm clear you know what's going on mm-hmm. um because also like it takes a heck of a long time for the dark spiral you know the tower of blackness to dissipate yeah um yeah so it's not entirely clear like maybe the gentleman doesn't actually die right away yeah <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Um Yeah, I was actually trying to just remind myself of how the book ends. Like is it a more definitive ending? And I don't know that it is really in the book. So it's left sort of similarly like he's defeated, but is he killed dead beyond recall? Uh, that is not entirely clear sure um yeah and i i think that's fine because i think the other thing we were going to talk about at the end is maybe things that are maybe some threads that are left yeah uh open intentionally Mm -hmm. um but before we get to that so there's kind of two codas well there's kind of so there's there's the denouement so right so there's uh Norrell and Strange and like they're sort of like coming to grips with their own fate mm-hmm. which is they get sucked up I guess into this black vortex that seems to be the implication mm-hmm. um 
Right. And also sort of um is it is it Vinculus who or who is it who says that like they were all just part of like the Raven King's plan? Yeah, Vinculus says that, yeah. Is it Vinculus? That's what I thought. Um and so like yeah. Like what is like What was the plan? To, I mean, I guess to restore magic to England, maybe? Do the Raven like, King's plan? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Like, it's not entirely... But, like... Like, I don't think the plan would have been to, like, piss off a fairy and, like, <laughs> do all of the stuff that happens there. But, I mean, yeah, like, that seems to be... Like, is this... So are are Norrell and Strange the Illyrias of England? Like with the old like, ones sort of like like they're well, I mean maybe not quite that, but like like they're the result of like hundreds of years of, you know, planning and I don't know, breeding or <laughs> something like <laughs> I don't, it's kind of it's kind of strange how that all works out yeah Um, well we never we never get a clear sense of a plan or motivation from the raven king i don't think um like we see him come out and like revive vinculus and then we don't see him again yeah yeah like for all the talk of the raven king and bringing him back like he's literally around for like two seconds Mm -hmm. now i mean that's not to say like we don't see him again so like that doesn't mean he's dead. It just means he went yeah. off somewhere. Yeah. Um. And and you know English magic has been restored and all of that. But yeah. So there's this kind of like weird, you know, sense that like okay, Norrell and Strange, their their part is done. They've sort of been you know parts of this, you know, predestined kind of set of events, and they did what they needed to do and now we can dispose of them yeah well Um, yeah and i think like kind of what happens next like it kind of connects back to um we we didn't really mention mr norrell's moments of joy when he discovers oh sure um when when he gets them to the the king's roads and uh it is kind of delightful to see him sort of hopping around and, um, you know, in his frazzled wig. Um, right. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, dude, and, just he says, already. and he says something in there about how, like, the curse doesn't affect us here. Um, so I think it's right. more, I think it, like, so this is, you know, we should look at just what's in the show, not compared to the book, but, um, but I think the book is clearer that, like, that's what they're off to do is sort of explore the roads of fairy, mostly because the cur- like here, certainly in the show, it kind of implies they aren't under the curse there. Um, well, but I took that and it's somewhere I took they that can to mean escape. I took that to mean the gentleman's curse and like the black tower thing. Well, yes, that is the that's what I was referring to. Like the black, but that's tower different. Doesn't... But that's different than like. What I was talking about was like the Raven King's like 
whatever plan or whatever. That's sure. all. I, that's that's what I'm confused about. Like yeah. I, I don't. I I agree with what you just said about him. You know, when they're in fairy, you know, and sort of not being under the gentleman's curse anymore. Um, yeah, I don't, and I don't have a strong answer there. I just that seems to be the implication of like they're done. Like what when they come back and you know have broken the fairy spell by helping you know Stephen mm-hmm. sort of imbuing him with it. I also like yeah I mean the Raven King's plan doesn't seem to include undoing the fairy curse <laughs> so well like, it doesn't include like pissing off a fairy to get cursed in the first place right like like I don't think his plan includes fairies at all it's right. it's all about English magic and restoring English magic. It's not about fairies and their magic per se. Um, also, like, I, so, I mean, I know you said you don't want to compare too much to the book, but I seem to recall and I, I haven't gone back to read it or anything since I read it the one time you know, a few years ago, but I seem to recall um, Stephen going around and like doing more things. Like after he mm. was, you know, got magic. Am, am I misremembering that? Like, well, yeah, no. I think it's it's more strongly implied that like he's like he's now the he's Raven the, King, right? Well, he's the King of Fairy, right? Like I think well, he's King. But I yes, but I I guess I took it as both because he's like the Black King now sure. too, right? Like right. he's imbued with the magic yeah. of England. Yeah, yeah, and so I. I the sense that I got this, it, unless I'm completely like rewriting my own memory of the book, um, which is certainly possible, wouldn't be the first time. Um, I got more of the sense that like, like the two of those things were sort of combined into one person. Mm. But maybe I'm well, and I think the Raven King always was like that a bit. Like he was a human who was the only one to really sure. learn the secret of fairy magic so i think like even when you say we're restoring magic to england well i think the raven king was implied to be the birth of english magic which was something he learned from his time from fairy so there's there is something sort of intertwined about the two um i think in the book stephen is kind of done with england like he's sort of oh is he okay that's my memory is that he is going if he's going to stay and rule or just wander around or do magic it's more that fairy is now his realm okay. and um and he's sort of maybe a little happy to put england behind him but um yeah maybe i'm just misremembering then um but yeah we don't really get that quite as clearly here it just sort of ends with no. him killing the gentleman Right. Well, and I mean, the implication that he's the king. Right. So I guess it, it right. does kind of do that. But... Right. But like, what does that mean? Right. Um, I mean, I think I hope we can, we can hope that he's a more benevolent ruler than the gentleman, but like, we don't get any real insight into like, what it means for him to be king here. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of get a couple codas. So we get... uh. 
Arabella in Venice, mm-hmm. right? Um, with her new friend, uh, Grace Steele, mm-hmm. um, who takes her to like where Strange had kind of been holding up, uh, or at least doing some of his magic and stuff, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she, she hears a voice and then sees, the sort of shimmered reflection in the pool um and it's Jonathan and i mean it's you know it's fine it's nice it's sappy um mm-hmm. but yeah it's this implication that like so this is where this is where i start thinking about like setup for season 2 yeah. right yeah. cuz it's like oh you're gone but oh you're going to keep working to try to come back right mm-hmm. um Right, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, but you know, don't wait for me. Just you know, <laughs> don't wait up. <laughs> um, but like, there is that sense of like, he says he's not sure that he's anywhere, but like, there is a sense of like, I don't is is this like the equivalent of a forced ghost where there's like still some kind of presence, you know, and individuality that." is called Jonathan Strange in mm. which given the right set of circumstances and the right spell or whatever, like, could he manifest again? Yeah. Um, you kind of get that sense that maybe like if they wanted to write a season two, they yeah. could use that yeah. as a hook. Yeah. Well, and, and Arabella saying, you know, if you don't come back, I'll go and find you. Right. Too. Like, right. Definitely seems like that could be a, second season plot is right maybe if, she'll go to the Segundison honeyfoot school maybe of magic she'll go learn some magic you know um and flora seemed interested in learning some magic too so maybe that could be like sure. potential future storylines um sure yeah yeah no that 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 and the gentleman's fate are the two that definitely seem like they were leaving things open potentially um, well, and which, then, and and as the novel did too, like she didn't necessarily tie sure. up every loose end. It's like there's a sense that these stories could continue if she wanted to. Sure, and then you know with Children Mass and Vinculus too, like yeah. there's this yeah. there's this idea that now there's this whole like society of magicians and and um oh what's there's this uh there's this show my parents like now where there's like the the woman like who wakes up with like tattoos all over her body and like all yeah. each tattoo it's like the, it's you know instead of monster called. of the week it's like the tattoo of the week uh-huh. and they have to figure out like what it, it's like that could be vinculus right like right what you know what's the passage of the week of the raven king's book that we right there's <laughs> you a good, don't wanna there's a good procedural buddy comedy in the children mass and vinculus <laughs> uh you know, like a, I, I like absolutely a, want to see that, like a bones kind of thing going sure. on. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> 100% of, want to see that now. The Adventures of Tildermass um, and Vinculus. Um, yeah. So, right. Tildermass is now sort of carting him around to all the magicians in the land and uh, wants to decipher this is new text because he has a new story to tell now. Um, yeah. books cannot read themselves. Labinculus has no clue what he says. Um, maybe he's a recipe book. <laughs> um, 
Um, or, a, or a collection of pompous sermons. So, yeah. Sure, sure. Not even just regular sermons, but the pompous one. Right, right. Um, yeah, and then, so, like, uh, the other thing is that that final line from Children's House is, mm. um, you know, when, when asked where Strange and Nora went, he says, I do not know, wherever magicians used to go, perhaps, beyond the sky, on the other side of the rain. Um, which is, of course, what fairy, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, like literally, that's where Norrell mm -hmm. took them was the to the other side of the rain. He made yeah. the rain and then took himself and Strange through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is this, yeah, and like we don't, because we don't see what happens to Norrell and Strange, right? Like, what if they do like escape back into fairy before this like tower of blackness disappears? Mm -hmm. you know so yeah maybe maybe they're in fairy with uh steven yeah and you know i don't know hijinks and sue <laughs> um and maybe that's the thing is that you know now they have to try to get back and you know because all the mirrors are broken um you know the only way they you know he can see is through these like pond reflections and stuff but yeah no i think there's a lot of potential for that i i you know as you were saying it, it is um you know a, a was it bbc or itv i don't remember but it was certainly a british series yeah, one, of them. Um, one or the other and um they do tend to do unexpected and strange things at random intervals so you never know i you know, I, I doubt at this point that we'll ever see a revival of the series, but um, but I'd kind of really be interested in it if it did come back. Like, I'd really, whether or not it was based on anything Susanna Clark wrote, um, I think, like, there's a lot of potential for a season two. Um, yeah. Just because, like, I just enjoy the world and the, the characters so much. Um, so, but I think it did sort of modest ratings. So um, that's probably the main decision maker when they're sort of deciding what to do about things like that. Mm. Um, and Susanna Clark, who I kind of mentioned, like this was her only um, like major novel. She's published some short stories and um, she has a short story collection called The Ladies of Grace Adieu, which is set in the same world, but doesn't deal with these oh. characters. Um, it's a collection mm -hmm. of short stories, but they're all like different fairy tales from different parts of England. Um, is it Mr. Honeyfoot's book? I don't think so, but- Oh, it, what a waste well, of that. We could kind of, I think, I think there could be some retcon to make it Mr. Honeyfoot's book. Um, that would that would be really cool because if, like, a lot of them are are more some of them are more modern like have the same kind of drawing room aesthetic but some of them are more like folk tales and stuff so yeah you could you probably could stretch it to make it Honeyfoot's collection um but hmm. like my understanding is that like ever since this this book came out and then that collection she's been writing something for the 10 or 15 years since then and 
you know, is just one of those people that who knows when or if she'll ever publish anything else. So, um, sure. And I mean, this took her a while, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a good, again, like decade or two. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether we'll ever see a continuation of the story or, but, um, but I, I hope that we do someday. I think the ladies of Grace Do would make a good, just kind of episodic miniseries too. Um, like just do like an episode per story. Um, sure. Almost like a Black Mirror kind of. Yeah, right. Like like let's do the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell anthology series, um, which is mm. kind of what that collection is sort of like. Um, But yeah. Cool. Well, any final overarching thoughts about this miniseries? I re- I'll start and say I really like it. This is, to me, one of the best adaptations in the kind of balance it strikes between being faithful to the source material, but also being distinctly sort of its own experience and not being afraid to shorten things and make changes and expand areas and sort of, I don't know, translate to the medium. So it it strikes a good balance, I think. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, this is um, a really good adaptation and, um, yeah, I don't I don't know that I like I don't have any big thoughts like wrapping it up or like summarizing everything um per se. I I think um we kind of talked about, you know, everything all the way through and and the you know, I I do think um like you said it is, you know, there's some nice moments in the final episode. I mean, this is probably it's probably easier to do with like a a mini series kind of thing where you can you know have a little more of the structure and like you you know we talked about the um, production notes right up front of you know you have the one writer and you know you have kind of your directors and like you mm-hmm. know exactly kind of how things are gonna go and and um, I like that they sort of have the chapter aesthetic you know to the each mm. you know episode or whatever but um you know you get you you get things like you don't have to remember back like three seasons that like at the beginning of the series Segundus like literally the opening Hmm. scene is Segundus trying to do a spell and then here we finally get him like sort of achieving that and yeah right and the sense that like I mean, it's it's easier in the book with, like, all the footnotes and stuff because you can see, like, you know, how many books he ends up writing and stuff later or whatever, but... Um, yeah, it's a good... con. It's a, you know, very stark contrast to, like, class, which was sort of canceled without an, a proper ending, really, whereas here, even though I think they leave themselves the option of continuing the story, it's very self-contained, and... Like all of the things like are called back in a satisfying way, 
you know, so you get the the spell to join things together and you get the nameless slave and um, the fulfillment and- of Vinculus's prophecies and all the characters have very, you know, clearly outlined arcs that kind of have a beginning, middle and end. So it's, it's much more satisfying, yeah. you know, which I think it's clearly, it's based on a book and they had that story sort of written for them. So um, it's, Sure. They have a big head start when they're... But that doesn't necessarily... I mean, there's other books that have been adapted and not done very well, so... This is true. um, I, you know, still still giving credit where credit's due that, you know, they were able to kind of incorporate all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Seven episodes is a weird number, but it works out for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the most magical number, so it's sort of fitting. Sure. All right. Uh... Yeah, so I guess uh, maybe quickly what we're on to next then, because um, I'm not familiar with the next show at all. Sure. Um, hey, I was not prepared for that question. Um, we're going to um, watch a series called The Fades, um, which was a 2011 miniseries. Um, on the BBC. So we're kind of sticking with pairing up the weed and verse with, you know, a British production of some sort. Um, and this one's going further back, you know, I guess with class and then Jonathan Strange now fades, we're going in kind of reverse chronological order. Um, so this is the oldest one in 2011. So, um, uh, Ian DeCastiger is in it from, he's an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? Um, oh, okay. Uh, was the Scottish guy in that? Um, do you know there's the I, scientists? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so, um, yes. That guy. I, I trust you. I don't know the actor's name, so I can't okay. verify. Off no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying he's, he's the lead character. Um, okay. It also has uh, Natalie Dormer and uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Um, so some, you know, pretty well-known actors who were much less well-known in 2011 than they are right now. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of a supernatural um, drama series. Um, so yeah, I won't say too much more. We can maybe do some setup and production notes uh, in the first episode, um, I watched this not too long ago. Um, so, and I've only seen it once, so I don't remember it in great detail, but, um, but I do remember enjoying it. So it's six episodes long and looking forward to talking about that. Cool. All right. Well, we will be back then next week with the fades and uh, some more angel, and I guess we'll we'll see what happens with Illyria and Fred and all of that. Sounds good. See you then. Mm-hmm.